Good morning. Welcome to Axios Today. It's Thursday, January 28th. I'm Nyla Boodoo. Here's how we're making you smarter today. Facebook's pullback from politics. Plus, the second round of small business loans are off to a slow start. But first, today's one big thing. President Biden is stitching climate change into the fabric of the entire federal government. Yesterday, President Joe Biden signaled a new direction for the country. When it comes to climate change, he said it should be considered an essential part of foreign policy and national security. And he signed an extremely wide-ranging executive order that includes a number of new measures, specifically one order that blocks new oil and gas leases on federal lands and waters. Ben Geeman, Axios's energy reporter, is here with three big takeaways on the new Biden climate agenda. Ben, number one, let's start with this order that protects public lands. Although we should have mentioned this doesn't include tribal lands. Realistically, what does this order do? Because doesn't most drilling happen on private land? Yeah, that's right. Roughly 20 percent of U.S. oil production comes from federal areas. One thing that's important to note is that while the oil industry is very upset about this, the immediate effects are somewhat limited, right? Because there is a lot of area that's already under lease. And going forward, depending on what policy ultimately emerges from this, it would, over the long term, eventually affect the trajectory of domestic production from these areas. So let's move to number two. Uh, The convening of this uh, summit is essential to ensuring that 2021 is going to be the year that really makes up for the lost time of the last four years. That's John Kerry, who's now a special envoy on climate in the Biden cabinet, talking about a new summit that the U.S. will be convening. Ben, do these summits matter? Yes, these summits matter for a couple of reasons. One is they get heads of state level people together talking about climate policy. But number two, they are very much a sort of statement of intent and direction, because what the president has done here and what John Kerry is doing is saying the U.S. is again back in business. We are again part of the framework of global climate diplomacy. One thing I'd note, however, is that he's been fairly candid in saying, look, the U.S. has to also approach this with ambition, but also some real humility and show that we are prepared to take these domestic actions after a significant period of time in which the U.S. hasn't quite been doing that. Ben, our third takeaway is this whole idea of climate change being an essential part. Foreign policy makes sense, but national security? What does that mean? Yeah, that's right. One of the interesting things about this executive order is that it really sort of seeks to elevate the role of climate change in both domestic and in foreign and national security policy. So one thing that the order does is tells the director of national intelligence to produce an intelligent estimate on the national and economic security effects of climate change. And so this is a real effort to sort of say we're going to really elevate the level of these national security concerns as they relate to climate change in federal policymaking and in federal decision making. Do you think it also represents weaving it into almost all corners of government? Is that an exaggeration? No, I think that is a 100 percent accurate thing to say. I mean, this executive order is over 7,500 words. And the most striking thing about it is that it looks to stitch climate change into the fabric of the entire federal government, right? So that's on everything from policies from the agencies that you would think that make environmental and resource policy, the Interior Department, EPA, and the Energy Department. But really, it includes almost every federal agency and department. Ben Geeman writes Axios' Generate newsletter. Thanks, Ben. Thanks for having me on. We'll be back in 15 seconds with an update on the most recent Paycheck Protection Program. Welcome back to Axios Today. 
The second round of the Paycheck Protection Program loans have been rolling out since January 11th, but it's off to a slow start. If we just go by the numbers here, $35 billion out of the $284 billion of total available funding has been delivered. And one-third of small businesses say they're going to need some form of financial aid over the next six months to survive. Axios Markets reporter Courtney Brown has been looking into this. Courtney, what's been slowing down these loans? Well, there have just been a few snafus with getting these loans approved. Essentially, the SBA put a few protocols in place to help tamp down on any type of fraud. But that's been getting caught up in legitimate borrowers' way. So if you're a second-time borrower, meaning you access the first round of PPP, and if there was anything wrong with your application the first time, your application is going to get flagged, and that's going to prevent banks from being able to lend to you again. So this is something the SBA is trying to fix because obviously it's slowing down the aid that small businesses need right now to survive. How is the government trying to help? Is the PPP program it right now? For now, the Federal Reserve set up its own type of Main Street lending program, and there wasn't any demand. And the key difference between that program and the SBA's Paycheck Protection Program is that the SBA program, the loans are forgivable. You don't have to pay it back. That wasn't the case for the Fed's small business program. So there's obviously demand for loans that you don't need to pay back. If you're a struggling small business, why would you want to take on even more debt? What else is different about this second round? What's different with this round of PPP money, if you're a small business and you're interested in PPP, you have to prove that there was a 25% drop in your sales year over year, whereas the first go-around, you didn't have that kind of barrier. So there is, you know, a longer kind of application process than there was the first time. Courtney Brown is an Axios Markets reporter. Last night, Facebook announced that they're pushing away from politics on their platform. Sarah Fisher, Axios' media reporter, is here to explain more. Sarah, is this for real or is this just a well-timed PR move on behalf of a platform that's come under a lot of criticism? Well, I do think this is in part a PR move to address some of that criticism, but it is substantial. Facebook said that they would stop providing recommendations for users to join civic and political groups. Facebook also said that it plans to take steps to reduce the amount of political content in the newsfeed itself. I would expect that these changes help to make the platform a little less political, but it doesn't mean Facebook is completely banning free speech and political speech. Do we expect that other platforms will follow suit? We've certainly seen Twitter taking some steps in the past couple of weeks. I think this is a reckoning for all of Silicon Valley. Almost every platform has done some sort of restrictions on political ads in the past year. Really, this is a culmination of small steps that's leading to a reality now that tech platforms don't want to be as deeply committed to political content, even though they prioritize free speech. Politics is getting too messy for them to want to continue to deal with. Sarah Fisher is Axios's media reporter, and this is a good time to disclose to our audience that while Facebook has been one of our advertisers, none of our advertisers have any say in the editorial content that we create as journalists. Thanks, Sarah. Thank you, Nyla. 
Before we go today, the latest tech to change how we travel? Flying taxis. Well, if you could imagine a drone and a helicopter having a baby, that's kind of what it looks like. I got Axios' transportation reporter, Joanne Muller, to explain to us how this is all going to work. So it's about the size of a helicopter, maybe a little smaller, but it's got multiple rotors on top. And when will we see these taxis flying high above the traffic? We're entering what I like to call peak hype season for flying taxis. Five years ago, it was autonomous vehicles that were just around the corner. But I think it'll be at least 2030, more likely 2035, before you and I are flying above the the traffic jams. That's it for us today. You can reach our team at podcasts at axios.com or find me on Twitter at Nyla Thanks for listening. Stay safe. And we'll see you back here tomorrow morning.